and welcome to Ipsy Dixit. My name is Ben Edwards. I'm an associate professor of law at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, uh, William S. Boyd School of Law. And I'm here with Alex Platt, uh, who is a Kalinko Fellow at Harvard Law School, uh, who will be joining uh, you know, Kansas in the fall to talk about his paper, Gatekeeping in the Dark, SEC Control Over Private Securities Litigation Revisited. Uh, welcome to the, the podcast, Alex. Thanks so much, Ben. Very happy to be here. Excellent. Well, well so, so glad to have you. I, I saw the paper and I was really interested in it because I, I think you're pushing on something that people don't really you think about or understand in terms of how this, this space works. So, so what, what maybe a, you know, a good way to start is to, to think about, uh, you know, a public company, uh, you know, gets in trouble or there's you know, reason to believe that a, you know, a public company may have done something wrong or made some statements you know, to the securities market that turned out not to be true. Uh, who's, whose responsibility is it or who's going to enforce the federal securities laws? A lot of different people might become involved in this. Um, we, have a, we have a few different enforcers uh, who could pursue some sort of legal action against the company. We have Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, the Department of Justice, if there's a criminal violation involved, there are state attorneys general um, who can bring actions uh, in some cases. And then there are uh, private parties, there are investors, uh, typically through a class action uh, under the securities laws could, could bring an action against the company as well. So there's a lot of different sources of potential legal liability under the federal securities laws that uh, such a company might uh, have to worry about. So when, when the companies, when they, when they face multiple enforcers, like how, how much, how expensive is it to fight off multiple enforcers at the same time? Like what's the, what's the landscape for a company like? Yeah, I think it's, I think it can be pretty, uh, pretty complicated, pretty costly. Um, there is, um, you know, a, a specialized practice on the defense side in dealing with securities law issues, but there's also this growing uh, field of crisis management on the defense side, which I think is really interesting, which uh, goes beyond one subject matter area. These are lawyers who advise companies who are facing some kind of big scandal and need advice, not just on liability under the securities laws, but under every possible avenue for liability. And so there's lots of firms that have these crisis management practices setting up to, to advise companies, you know, on how to defend or settle or negotiate, uh, keep it, keeping an eye on all the different potential sources of liability um, across the board. So there's lots of, you know, lots of different costs involved in that, and not just paying the lawyers, but you also have to worry about an action, or maybe you, you want to settle one action or, or, or negotiate some terms in one case, but you have to worry about what effect that will have on the other parallel proceedings against you. So for example, um, you know, if you are facing an SEC enforcement action, the SEC may want you to um, agree to a settlement that includes certain allegations against you. Well, a private plaintiff can pick up those allegations uh, included in an SEC settlement 
and just copy and paste them into a securities class action complaint or motion to dismiss. And that may help that plaintiff survive a motion to dismiss. So, you know, everything you do in one action uh, in defending one action might impact uh, you in another way. And, and there's a lot of dimensions of it. So, so, this, so essentially the same underlying facts can give rise to you know, sprawling legal actions, you know, both you know, class actions, individual actions, public SEC enforcement. You know, so, so thinking about a company like um, like Volkswagen, who had the, uh, the emissions test problems they could face, you know, environmental regulation, you know, they'd have the SEC coming after them. And then the facts that come out, you know, get put into these, if you call them uh, your piggyback lawsuits, that sort of you know, follow on the back of, of public enforcement actions. Those are, how common are those? Well, in the context of the SEC, which is the focus of my paper, um, that is to say the context of a private lawsuit piggybacking in some way on SEC enforcement activity, um, you know, there's been some prior research on this that shows that about 20% of settled class actions have some parallel SEC enforcement action. Um, I think I got that stat right. Um and uh, it's not just the number, the percentage, but those those class actions that do have a parallel SEC enforcement action to benefit from settle for more. They settle quicker um, and they're less likely to be dismissed. So the piggybacking cases are um, are benefiting, it seems, uh, from that literature in some way from from, you know, the work of the, the uh, SEC's enforcement actions. So so when the SEC acts. It can also you know, sort of pave the road for uh, you know, private plaintiffs or class actions to come in and get a recovery. Uh, how, how does the SEC think about uh, these sort of collateral consequences right now? Does it does it have any any standard for for what to do? Not really. Um, um, so if you take the agency's own word for it, they do not change their enforcement approach depending on whether or not there's likely to be or is already a pending parallel class action against the same company. So you, there was a, a congressional hearing a few years ago. One of the representatives asked the enforcement director that question directly. You know, Do you change your approach to settlement with a company if you know there's a class action uh, against the company? And the answer was, no, we do not. Um, another scholar asked a senior enforcement official the same question uh, a couple of years ago and got the same answer. And that answer is consistent with the SEC's other publicly available guidance. So if you look at the SEC enforcement manual, for example, um, that's a, a, a guidance document uh, that tells enforcement attorneys, among other things, it tells them what factors they should consider at different stages of the enforcement process. So, you know, should you consider, should you file an action? Should you settle? Should you negotiate a settlement? Um, the enforcement manual says you need to consider the impact on investors. How bad was the fraud? You know, how likely is this to happen again? Bunch of factors, but it doesn't say anything about considering the availability of private remedies or the existence of a, a pending uh, class action against the same target. So, and then, you know, other examples of this as well. So 
the, the, to put a, a pin or a bow on it, the SEC's own words reflect that it does not have a systematic or transparent approach to considering this uh, uh, piggyback effect. Hmm. So I mean, should, should the SEC get credit in some sense for the piggyback cases? You know, if, uh, you know, if, if, if the, if a public enforcement action or an SEC lawsuit uh, makes it a lot easier for piggyback suits to generate you know, bigger settlements, sh- should the SEC be able to count that in some respect uh, for it when it reports to Congress about its activities? Yeah, I mean, what we want is the agency to calculate and make decisions designed to achieve the total level of enforcement that it thinks is the best. Um, you know, what you might call the socially optimal uh, punishment, right? So um, let me let me do a little math to kind of illustrate the, 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 the problem under the current regime. Um, so suppose the agency has uh, a, a target company that it's done something wrong and the agency's enforcers figure out that, you know, the best would be for that company to have to pay $100, uh, as a sanction. That's the right level of punishment for this crime. That's the right way to deter others from doing this and whatever. Um, they figure out a hundred dollars. So now suppose the agency has a choice between two settlements. Um, settlement A, uh, the company pays $80 and no private litigation is catalyzed. Settlement B, the company pays the SEC $50 but another um, lawsuit is catalyzed by it, a private lawsuit against the companies as a result of the settlement for some reason. Um, and that private lawsuit results in another $50 being paid um, by the company. So the company is going to prefer, very strongly prefer the first option because the company just wants to pay less. So they will prefer to pay $80 uh, rather than $100. Um, and the question is, well, what option will the SEC choose? What option should it choose? Well, it should choose B because what it should care about is, you know, getting as close as possible to what it thinks is the best punishment that the company uh, needs to, to be, uh, to be imposed on a company, which would be a hundred dollars, which would be B. But under the current regime, um, you know, we have to worry that the SEC is more often choosing settlement A because what the SEC really cares about is not the total level of uh, punishment, but what punishment it gets, as in your words, what it gets credit for um, from Congress. So, you know, in settlement A, it gets credit for $80, which is more than 50, which is what it gets under B. But, um, but they lose that private litigation, which gets it closer to the, uh, to the optimal. So that's, you know, that's an illustration of, of how the failure to consider uh, the piggyback effect and the failure to internalize the benefits of the piggyback effect um, can lead the SEC to make choices that depart from what we would want them to choose, the socially optimal level. Let me just add before I stop talking, you know, in that example, um, in that example, the SEC was um, failing to catalyze enough private litigation You might frame it just the opposite way, that um, the SEC's failure to pay attention to private litigation is leading to too much uh, private litigation. And as a result of the SEC's failure, um, maybe there's too much 
private litigation happening and the SEC isn't worrying enough about that. Um, so, you know, regardless of how you view private litigation or the level, you should be concerned that the SEC is not um, kind of adopting a systematic or transparent approach to the issue. Right. So I, I want to sort of drop a, a footnote here that there's, there's probably an enormous amount of uncertainty. You know, even if they were to to try to consider this, uh, if it was, you know, some actions, like in, including some additional facts, you know, whether that will and, and how much it will catalyze private litigation on the other side is really difficult to know. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. I think um, there's a few responses to that. Number one, um, some things are easier to understand than others. So, for example, when the SEC is negotiating a settlement with a target, um, or or deciding what charges to file, if the SEC includes charges based on intentional wrongdoing, that's just going to be more helpful to a private lawyer, private class action, than if the SEC chooses to settle the case or bring the case based on mere negligence. Because um, private class actions under 10b-5 have to show intentional wrongdoing. So uh, the plaintiffs want to see the SEC, you know, trying to make that case that's going to help them make the case. Similarly, if the SEC, um, you know, they do a long fact-gathering operation before pursuing a case and they get a lot of facts and suppose they have a bunch of really salacious and damning facts and they're negotiating a settlement. Well, then the SEC has to decide um, in negotiation with the defendant, which facts are going to make it into this um, complaint or settlement document and which are going to not be included and how are these going to be presented. And if they choose to include, um, some of the really bad stuff, that's going to be really great for the plaintiff's lawyers because they get to learn those facts and include them in their complaint. And um, if they're not included, the plaintiffs may never learn about that. Um, And so there's other examples of this as well. Um, So that's kind of making it seem a little bit less complicated. Some things are are kind of, um, are not so abstract not so hard to get your arms around, well, what actions are going to trigger and which actions aren't going to trigger private litigation. But, um, you know, the the broader answer is that this is, I think, a problem that could be solved with uh, better data collection by the, by the agency. And if the agency tracked um, what cases, you know, what actions it brought and what the parallel litigation that happened uh, you know, was catalyzed by it or, or, and how that litigation fared, you know, over time, I mean, a picture could emerge that would provide some reasonable degree of clarity about, um, what kinds of, what kinds of actions by the agency are, are more likely to trigger more or less private litigation. And I think the problem could be solved with data. Let me add one more thing. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of, even more complicated, um, you know, decision-making or fact-gathering that agencies like SEC and others have to do um, that is much harder than I think than what I'm suggesting they should do. So, for example, we talked about the SEC enforcement manual. That asks an SEC enforcement attorney to figure out, you know, is this action going to deter wrongdoing? 
or you know what are the effects going to be on capital markets or you know how are investors going to re you know those are really tough questions to figure out um you know doj does something similar uh you know doj tells its prosecutors to consider the collateral consequences of corporate prosecution by which they mean you know is it if you prosecute this company, our shareholders going to be injured? What is the stock price going to do? What are, you know, what's going to happen to innocent parties in the market, et cetera. That's really hard to figure out too. What I'm asking is, I think, much more limited than that. It's simply looking internally to the legal system that the SEC is charged with enforcing the securities and disclosure system. Um, what are the likely downstream consequences for private securities class actions against the same party. I mean, that's a, that's a closed universe um, that may not be knowable in every case. It may be complicated, but um, I think it surely, at least in some cases um, it's something that, that, um, that the SEC could figure out um, with some degree of, uh, of reasonable certainty. So how, how transparent would you want the SEC to be about its decision-making here? Would, would you want them to say, we took a, a, a larger settlement here because we didn't want to catalyze private litigation or the settlement was sufficient and there's no need to, to catalyze private litigation. I think what's really important is, you know, not, not I don't really know what uh, the SEC's leadership should or shouldn't say specifically about it, but what I want is to make sure that overseers of the SEC, SEC watchers understand that the agency is making these decisions um, and holding them accountable for the decisions that they are making. So, you know, even though I talked a few minutes ago about, you know, the SEC's own words about this, in which they really strongly deny that they even consider the piggyback effect. Um, you know, there, there, there are enforcement trends um, that you can look at, which may tell a, a more complicated story. So, you know, um, for example, for, I guess, 10 years or almost 10 years, the SEC has been trending away from intent-based uh, intent settlements with corporate defendants. And that just means, among other things, that means plaintiffs are getting less benefit because private plaintiffs are getting less benefit from the SEC's enforcement actions than they would if they were doing more intent-based um, settlements. So, you know, you could read that trend as consistent with the idea that the SEC is actually making a secret policy judgment to minimize piggybacking. Right. And that may be, that may be what's going on. Um, but you could also, um, have a darker interpretation of that, which is that, no, the SEC isn't paying attention to this. And all they're doing is just internalizing the defendant's strong preference for minimizing piggybacking. And it goes back to that math problem that I talked about a few minutes ago. So, you know, the, uh, the defendant doesn't want to face a class action or wants to face a weaker class action rather than a stronger one. And so the defendant pushes the SEC hard to drop the charges from intent-based to negligence-based. Um, and 
maybe the SEC gets a couple extra dollars in the settlement or something and they move on and the SEC is happy. But meanwhile, we've lost um, some private enforcement that might have been catalyzed. And so, you know, maybe the SEC is doing this because it's um, made a deliberate policy choice, but maybe not. And um, I think what what I what I want to do with the paper is make sure that the folks who watch SEC enforcement keep an eye on this. Um, you know, I would like the SEC, the agency to do it, of course, as well, and be upfront and deliberate about what it's doing. But um, short of that, I think, uh, uh, you know, those who watch the agency's enforcement patterns, I think, need to pay attention to this as well. Is, is there, you know, when I think about this, I, I wonder about, you know, maybe maybe something of an agency cost risk that the, the attorney uh, who is representing the SEC or negotiating a settlement may want to get a big number. Uh, and if they do that by, by trading away, you know, these catalyzing benefits for private litigation, then the SEC attorney, you know, gets this huge resume boost for settling, you know, a multimillion dollar, perhaps multi-billion dollar, you know, case. And that, that presumably translates into earning potential when they leave the SEC. You know, but, but if they're doing that by selling or essentially trading away the benefits that, that a class action would obtain, are you, are you concerned about that or worried that something like that may be going on? Yeah, definitely. That that individual level incentive, you know, is one possible story here. I mean, there's the agency level, um, sort of a parallel problem at the agency level, which um, is that the agency gets reviewed and rewarded by Congress based on its enforcement record um, and the way Congress typically evaluates the enforcement record is flawed. It's, um, it's based on some statistics that don't do a great job of reflecting like the true impact of the agency's enforcement program. So things like the dollar value of settlements, um, or the number of enforcement cases brought or something like that. But um, so you're right. So the agency has this um, bureaucratic imperative to prefer, you know, back in our, back in that math problem, the agency has a bureaucratic imperative, I think, to um, prefer settlement A, in which it gets $80 rather than settlement B, in which it only gets 50, but it produces a total uh, penalty of $100 once you factor in the private litigation. And that's just because Congress doesn't, um, Congress doesn't pay attention to the piggyback effect. So the SEC doesn't pay attention to it, maybe because Congress doesn't pay attention to it. So, you know, one of the policy kind of simple policy reforms I suggest in the paper is, we'll just start telling Congress about the piggyback effect. Um, so, you know, in the annual enforcement reports that the SEC generates, they could start. Um, they could start talking about not just the dollars that it obtained through its penalties, but the dollars that it has caused the company to pay as a result of catalyzed private litigation. Now, I said caused. I mean, you know, it's it's uh, it's always going to be complicated because private litigation that piggybacks on the SEC. Um, is going to vary in terms of how much it piggybacks. So we've been talking a lot about 
uh, the SEC's enforcement division, but there's a whole um, whole other category of piggybacking that I talk about in the paper that comes from a whole part, different part of the SEC. That's the Division of Corporation Finance. I, I wanted to, to talk about those those comment letter decisions. Yeah, this is something that I think um, has been completely completely overlooked. Um, you know, folks have talked about uh, piggybacking a little bit in the SEC. Uh, enforcement context, but I think folks have overlooked the, the important role that um, comment letters are playing in in catalyzing private litigation. So let me step back. So corporation finance is a, is a big uh, uh, division of the SEC. They do a bunch of different things, but kind of the most voluminous, uh, the most kind of large portion of what they do by volume is uh, review and comment on the periodic disclosures of companies. Right. So things, you know, 10K, 10Q, all these disclosures. Um, there's a large group of attorneys and accountants in this division who look at these things, not every year, but um, I think every company gets reviewed every three years. So they're doing a thousand companies a year. Uh and they look at them, the financial disclosures, and if they see a problem or uh, some missing information or a red flag, they write a letter to the company and either ask for more information or flag the problem. Uh, and that they engage in correspondence. The company writes back. There are phone calls. And it ends either with the company making a change to its disclosures or not. Um, and... Uh, the big wrinkle is that since 2005, those letters going back and forth between the SEC and the company have been made presumptively public themselves. That is, they are posted on the SEC's website um, after a couple months. And so, you know, the big trend that I flag in the paper is that plaintiffs' lawyers are using these now. Um, they're using these comment letters to support their securities class actions. Um, to survive motions to dismiss, and they're using them for a bunch of different elements of their claim. Uh, so uh, these comment letters, which are drafted with other thoughts in mind, you know, not they're not, I think, intending to provoke litigation, are being used uh, uh, down the road for that purpose. So the SEC is picking up the phone now, to make calls as opposed to, to, to you know, creating these these paper trails that can cause problems. That's right. I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's, a, that's, if you don't, if you're at Corp Fin and you're an attorney and you are worried about your comment letter being used as fodder for plaintiff's litigation against the company, well, you um, have a nice way to avoid that by saving the really harsh stuff or the the bottom line for a phone call. Now, there is a policy in Corp Fin about use of phone calls. Um, there was actually an OIG report that is uh, Office of the Inspector General at the SEC about this issue, um, kind of flagging the discrepancies and the inconsistencies and when phone calls are being used. But it's a way, you know, it, it, it's, um, it's a basically a, a gatekeeping tool. It's a way that these accountants and attorneys can minimize the piggyback effect of what they do by picking up the phone. But there are other ways as well. I mean, even if they're using letters, 
they have a lot of discretion and there's a lot of variation in how the um, letters are framed and written. And this turns out to make a big difference. I mean, so I've been looking at all these uh, judicial decisions about, um, you know, securities class actions that rely on comment letters and the courts pay attention to the difference in framing. So if the SEC's really asking a, a question rather than implying a violation, uh, the courts will say, well, that doesn't say anything. It just, it, they're just asking a question. It doesn't say the SEC, th- but, but there's little differences in language in these comment letters that seem to, uh, you know, for example, if the comment letter really suggests that the SEC finds a big problem with what the company has done, um, rather than is just interested in learning more information about it, the courts will pay attention to that. And that can make the difference in whether, uh, a class action gets dismissed or not. How, how foreseeable is a, is a private securities class action at that comment letter stage? Because I, I would think this is before lawsuits have shown up. It's well before lawsuits have shown up. I mean, in these cases, it is often the first, um, the SEC's comment letter in many cases is like the first notice that there's a problem. Um, you know, and sometimes it's the first notice to uh, uh, the leadership of the company um, that there's a problem. You know, maybe some folks down the chain have made decisions or something. Um, so the SEC comment letter comes in and says, why are you treating this accounting, you know, thing this way and not that way? Um, uh, and so, yeah. So is it foreseeable to the specific attorney or accountant at the SEC when they write the letter? Probably not. But at the same time, is it foreseeable in a broader sense that the comment letters can be used for litigation when they turn up major violations or major problems? Yeah, that's very foreseeable. Um, That has kind of become a a systematic effect of these comment letters um, that when they turn up something that creates a, a, a stock market reaction, basically a stock drop, um, that the comment letters themselves become instrumental in establishing various elements of the plaintiff's claim, you know, whether it's materiality or uh, intent or, uh, or, or falsity or whatever. Um, these comment letters have become an important tool for plaintiff's lawyers. Okay. And so it would make sense for the SEC to be thoughtful uh, about what to put in them when it writes them. You know, if it sees something very bad, you know, the, they may make a choice uh, to be a little harsher, uh, knowing, knowing the, the litigation catalyzing effects it can have. Uh, or they may, you know, decide that question. they're still gathering information. Well, that's right. I mean, you know, I mean, in the, in the, the basic, the basic argument is that this is, um, you know, the, the comment letter regime, one of its impacts is generating litigation or, or catalyzing litigation. And so um, it has to be evaluated with that in mind. Um, so everything from choices about how many companies are going to be reviewed every year to, like you said, the framing of the letters to um, the use of phone calls or otherwise, all those things should be uh, done those policies should be set with an understanding about the private litigation 
downstream effects. Now, again, you know, I'm, <laughs> you can hear in the way I framed it, I'm trying to make these arguments so that they are rational and appealing to folks, regardless of your, <laughs> regardless of your beliefs about private class actions. I mean, so if you're somebody who worries about frivolous litigation, you should agree with me just as much as somebody who believes litigation, private litigation is extremely important and productive. Um, either way, you would want um, a kind of rational and thoughtful approach to these issues, I think, um, from from the gatekeepers, the agencies who are controlling the flow. It, it makes sense to me that the FCC would want to think about the kind of footprint it leaves when it walks around in an area. Um, and you, you have to, to think about the consequence of, of what you do. So that, that doesn't, you know, that I, don't, I don't think it, it would necessarily you know, weigh in favor of not writing a comment letter, but to, but to be aware of, of what the consequence of it might be. Right. That's it. Okay. Well, uh, well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking about the paper. Uh, congratulations uh, on it. I think it's a, it's a really excellent piece and it's, it's certainly informed and changed the way I think about SEC comment letters and, uh, you know, and how to, how to, how to think about, you know, these sorts of catalyzing effects. Well, thanks so much for having me on. I, I, I really enjoyed the discussion and, um, and, uh, I'm happy to hear you like the paper. <laughs> Thank you. Someone shout, shut that gate and don't let him in. He spent his time a living in sin, trifling and gambling and sobbing up gin. Shut that gate, don't let him in. Shut that gate, don't let her in
Listen, my friends, you must all change your ways. Be honest, be faithful, be true. For there'll come a day at the big pearly gate when they'll all start to holler at you. Shut that gate and don't let them in. They spent their time a living in sin. Trifling and gambling and sobbing up gin. Shut that gate. Don't let it. 